I'm going to open us with a word of prayer, and then we're going to get back into our study of Joel chapter 2, and I'll give you a little heads up of what's coming in the next couple of weeks. So let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ability we have to gather together every week and to pray and to lift our burdens to you. And I pray, Lord, for the teaching time now. Lord, help me to accurately deal with the words that Joel has recorded by your Spirit. And I pray, Lord, that as we walk through this passage, that you will expand our vision of who you are. That even though there's challenging challenging things to think about of what was happening then and what's happening now and what will happen in the future, I pray that you'll give us a big picture vision of your glory and of your majesty and of what you're doing to bring about your perfect will on the earth. We ask all of this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in the midst of our study on Joel, and we took a week off last week for our time of prayer, and I'm thankful that we did that. We're going to jump back in today. I'm going to remind you of the outline, and we're going to get to the third point of an outline And then I hope to complete this section, speeding things up a lot, next week. After that, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. And we'll finish this section of Joel next week, Lord willing. Then I'll be gone for two weeks. Then I'll come back and I'll start the next section of Joel. And we'll move forward. So, as a reminder of where we are we've really reached a transition and turning point in the book of Joel. Because the beginning of Joel was really historical. Plague after plague of locusts had wiped out the land around Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the people were devastated. They had no food. They were in danger of starvation. They didn't have the ability to worship God because God had destroyed the ability to offer the sacrifices that he required Apparently the times of good that they had been enjoying without giving thanks to God came to a crashing halt because of the locust plague. And and God was warning them in chapter 2. He said in chapter 1, you need to cry out to God. But in chapter 2, the warnings get more pronounced. The judgment theme of the day of the Lord was building. And a foreign army was pictured. A foreign army we're going to talk about this morning. But a foreign army was pictured that was in essence on the doorstep. And the picture was one of doom and gloom. And God, through Joel, describing what this army could do, what it would do. And it was utter destruction. It was all a foretaste. It's all a foreshadowing. It's all pointing to the ultimate day of the Lord when God will settle all accounts. But for the people of Judah, the original people to whom the letter was written, it was a warning But there was hope added in. We covered it over several weeks. Chapter 2, verses 12 through verse 17. But particularly verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. So God was giving them the opportunity to repent and he even laid out the parameters of a national repentance of his people in verses 15 to 17. And then we get to verse 18 and there's a turning point because it seems clear based on all of the context and everything that's stated is that the people actually took God up on his offer and they did repent. They did turn to him. 
they did repent and turn away from their sins from the heart as a nation and God listened. So as we are covering this transitional section, the turning point in the book made my outline God's response to the genuine repentance of His people and we've so far covered two points. The first point was God's compassion abounds. Verse 18, Then the Lord will be zealous for His land and will have pity on His people. And as I described at the time, translators interpret this different ways. The ESV treats this as past tense. The Lord became jealous. The Lord had pity. So the best way, I think, to understand it overall is that there was an initial repentance by the people of Judah at that time such that God acted. But that's really just a foretaste, a foreshadowing of what will come when God's people truly repent during the Great Tribulation period. But it's clear, God still cares for that piece of real estate in the Middle East that we refer to as Israel and the boundaries around it. And God also still cares for His covenant people even when they turn their their back on Him. But there will be a time when all Israel will be saved. Now, it's not the current number of people who are on the earth. It's going to be a future time during the Great Tribulation. In fact, most Jewish people today are rejecting their Messiah and will wind up in hell if they don't repent. Pastor Steve is an exception, not the norm. But God's not done with Israel. God's not done with His people. So God's compassion abounds was the first point. The second point is that God's blessings overflow and we begin to see something of the restoration that God promises from calamity for repentance in verse 19. The Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. And as I covered it the time that we covered it a couple weeks ago, The prayer of repentance that God told the priests to make had two parts. Spare your people. Don't make your inheritance a reproach. In other words, there was the concern for the people, but also the concern for the nation because there were people mocking and saying, I know who you say you are, but who's your God? Where's your God? And God here is making it clear he's going to address that. You'll be unsatisfied and full with them, all of the things, grain, new wine, and oil, and I will never again make you a reproach among the nations. So the people were in danger of starving. God's saying, not only will you not starve, you're going to have an abundance. It's going to overflow. God is going to pour out His blessings in a tremendous way. And while this is specifically talking about what did happen at that time, but what will happen in the future, the reality is we experience something similar. We experience God's blessings. God's taken miserable sinners like us and given us new life in Christ and given us abundant life. He's given us fellowship with other believers. But there was a final promise that was there that I'll never make you a reproach among the nations that really is the challenge because... We know from the time that Joel spoke until today, countless times Israel has been conquered. It's been overrun. It's been destroyed. 
And I think the best understanding of this, because God's word is true, it's not wrong, it doesn't have to be corrected, is that for the generation that repented at the time of Joel, while they were alive, they were never made a reproach again. But the ultimate pointing forward is when God will restore his people. Romans 9, 10, and 11, Pastor Steve's book, God's Plan for Israel really addresses it in great detail, but there will come a time when whatever remnant of Israel is left on the earth, they will repent. And during the millennial kingdom, when God sets up Christ ruling on the earth, Israel will never be a reproach among the nations. That's a real promise that God will fully fulfill in the future. So that was a quick summary. And that brings us to the final point. And if you recall, when I introduced my outline, I said, I'm going to spell it out with the first three verses, each point, but the elaboration of it is going to follow from verses 21 to 27. So next week when I teach those verses, it's not a new outline, it's just filling out what's already here. And the third point particularly, we need the rest of it to fill out, even though I'm going to introduce it with verse 20. And my third point is this, God's caring love is magnified. So God's response to the genuine repentance of his people, God's compassion abounds, God's blessings overflow, God's caring love is magnified. Verse 20 says this, But I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, and its rear guard into the western sea, and its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great things. Now, it may not jump out that this has to do with God's caring love, but I, I hope it will. And like I said, it's going to be elaborated even further as we go through verses 21 to 27. So I believe my point is drawn from this verse, but it's not only in this verse. We'll see it elsewhere as well. But this really ties into the beginning of the chapter when Israel, particularly Jerusalem, was threatened with a picture of judgment with an invading army that would be unstoppable. Joel 2, 1 and 2, Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. So keeping it in context, there's this picture of an unbelievable army that's going to overwhelm everything. But then we're told, if you repent, if you cry out, God's merciful and compassionate... And that's what God is dealing with in verse 20. But I will remove the northern army far from you. Again, it's possible that this is a specific reference to the army of Assyria that would happen in the future. But in terms of God's picture of judgment at that present time, the invasion didn't occur because they repented. But God was saying, look, I marshaled forces against you I will remove them far from you. For all of the power 
and might of the pagan nation that was coming against them that they were being warned about, it's clear God was directing the shots. Joel 2.11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. In other words, God was the one that was bringing this army and he was going to empower that army to overwhelm his people. But they repented. God intervened and there's this picture of terror that gives way to a complete sense of relief. But it's very personal. God saying, but I. He's already talked about his people, his nation. And he's making it clear, I'm intervening personally. I'm not sending somebody else to deal with it. I'm taking care of the issue. It seems like a paradox from our human perspective, but God was bringing the army to do judgment. But since the people repented, God's saying, I'll take care of that army. I'll get rid of them. It all comes back to his special love for his covenant people. The beginning of Isaiah 43, 4, it's actually a longer section, talking about Israel. Since you are precious in my sight, since you are honored and I love you, this special love for his covenant people, in light of their repentance, caused him to respond And God is making it clear. It's not that he's just going to put up a wall and hold them at bay. He's going to take away the threat completely. I'll remove the northern army far from you. And I will drive it into a parched and desolate land. Again, there's a sense in which we always have to keep going back and looking at the big picture. Because we focus in and we have to look at the big picture. But Israel before the judgment, Judah before the judgment had been prosperous. They had grain and wine and they had it all and then the locust destroyed it but God's just saying it's going to come back again it's going to be lush it's going to be fertile I'm going to supernaturally step in and you're going to have abundance that's more than anything you could know and when he's saying I'm going to drive this army into a parched and desolate land the contrast couldn't be greater he's going to make Israel again a paradise and drive this army into nothingness. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea. It's a picture of an army that at one point was being described as unstoppable, professional soldiers, nothing could deter them from their task. And God is saying, that threat is going to be gone. It's going to melt away. I'll take care of it. If you go over to the Middle East, that part, it's, there is a contrast because you'll see greenery and then suddenly there's the desert. And what he's saying is these people are going to the desert. The scholars that look at it think that the Eastern Sea is probably the Dead Sea. Just a area. And then the Western Sea would be the Mediterranean. And if you ever look at a map, None of Israel is very big compared to the U.S. It's a little tiny place. But basically the idea is they're going to be driven away from Jerusalem. They're going to be driven away from the prosperity, from the farms. They're not going to be any kind of threat. They're going to be driven out into this area where it's desolate. That unstoppable army is going to be utterly destroyed by God. And its stench will arise. And its foul smell will come up. 
It's a graphic picture of human destruction. It's one of those things that is always challenging because God raises up whomever he raises up. And we see time and time again where God would bring a foreign nation to punish his people and yet the foreign nation was judged because they were still wicked. They were still sinning. I was reading a commentary on this whole section. It's interesting because there's a picture, there's more than one picture, but there's a picture in the book of Deuteronomy of what would happen to Israel if they turned their back on God. In Deuteronomy 28, beginning at verse 25, again, this is God through Moses warning Israel of what would happen if they're unfaithful. The Lord shall cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You'll go out one way against them, but you will flee seven ways before them. And you will be an example of terror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Your carcasses will be food to all the birds of the sky and to the beasts of the earth, and there will be no one to frighten them away. That's sort of a picture of what's happening to this pagan army, this northern army that God was going to use to destroy his people But because they repented, he's saying, I'll take care of them. This professional, well-trained army will be the one in disarray. They'll be the ones destroyed. For God's people, repentance was everything. They turned back to him with their hearts. That's all God ever wants is the heart. He wants love and affection from his people. And for them... The promise of Joel is that because of repentance, the wrath that was coming is replaced by God's rescue. But for God's enemies, those who don't repent, and that would include that great northern army, wrath is still there. There's a final little statement at the end of that verse. It says, And its stench will arise, and its foul smell will come up, for it has done great Things. Talking about this army, for it has done great things. It's a small statement, but it's part of the reason why God's wrath is poured out against them. Because the idea here, and we're going to see a contrast next week between God and these pagans, but this army was truly powerful, whatever the exact identification of this army. When it says it had done great things, it truly had the ability to do all the things that the beginning of the book of Joel said. doesn't mean they were good things, it just means they were big things. That type of greatness. And yet what we see over and over again is these pagan armies worshipping false gods who get full of themselves and think they can do anything. And yet God always can respond. It made me think, I had to look up how to spell it so I could do a Bible search, Sennacherib. You remember at one point he was just mocking Israel and mocking Israel. 2 Kings 18.22 But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God, is it not he whose high places and whose altars Hezekiah has taken away and is said to Judah and to Jerusalem, you shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem. Now therefore come, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. And I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse one official of the least of my master's servants and rely on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? 
It's an interesting statement he says at verse 25. He says, Have I now come up without the Lord's approval against this place to destroy it? The Lord said to me, Go up against this land and destroy it. There's an irony there because it seems as though in some respects Sennacherib had an awareness that he was being used and yet he had no fear of God. He had no care of God and actually he was mocking them saying you're going to cry out to God as though that's going to help you. The height of arrogance even if there's an acknowledgement that God exists to act as though God doesn't matter. It seems as though whatever army God was going to use to judge Israel might have had that type of mindset. Because of their great things, they thought nobody can stop us. In fact, as you read through that account, what was also being said was their gods couldn't stop us, their gods couldn't stop us, their gods couldn't stop us. But that's evidence when God overthrows that kind of power, when God intervenes and destroys and protects... It's evidence of how much God cares for and loves his people. But this is where we need a bigger view because I believe that that was fulfilled in part at the time of Joel. But the fullness of what's being talked about is going to happen in the future. I keep finding myself on the edge of wanting to teach the book of Revelation Because this is dealing with those very same things. And so I'm going to allude to things, but I'm not going to be talking with the type of precision that I'm trying to talk about the words of the text, but it's just to give this big picture of what's coming. Because there is a future time when God is going to fulfill all of this permanently and forever. As near as we can tell from Scripture without every detail being laid out, there's going to be an unbelievable battle during the Great Tribulation period. We call it the Battle of Armageddon. And then at the end of the millennium, when Satan's released for a time, there's going to be another battle of the unbelievers who are then populating the millennial kingdom. But God's going to overthrow those armies like what he's talking about with Joel. In Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to 16, it's talking about the battle that we refer to as the Battle of Armageddon. And we see that it's not just pagan armies, it's the entire supernatural and material world coming together. Verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. Verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. Verse 16, And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. If Pastor Steve ever has the opportunity to take another trip to Israel, and who knows if that will ever happen again with COVID, but if he ever gets the opportunity and you have the ability, I would encourage you to go. Because you can see where this is going to happen. It's fascinating. We go up on Mount Carmel, and that's where Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. And so there's 
well, everywhere in Israel that something might have happened, the Catholics built a church there. So the Catholics have places all over the country. But there's an area there, and so at one point you're up on the mountain, and you're looking around, and you look out, and it's like, oh, that's, that's, our, that's the Valley of Megiddo. That's it. And this is talking about every army of the world motivated by Satan and his demons gathering together to try and destroy Israel. You, you just step back for a moment and think of today's world armies. What do we got in China? Unlimited people, nukes, more technology because they've stolen all of ours. You've got Russia. Soviet Union fell, but Russia still got a lot of weapons, a lot of guns. It's crazy. India has always forgotten about, but they got as many people as China, and they've got nukes. And it seems clear at this point, America, if it even existed, isn't a friend of Israel's. You just imagine all the firepower of the world right now showing up in Israel. It's staggering. You would think the armies couldn't even move because there'd be so many people, there'd be so much weaponry, and yet they will not prevail. Because despite all the firepower of the collective armies of the world, motivated by supernatural forces, it's still to God nothing. He'll wipe them away. Again, I'm not teaching on the book of Revelation, but as best as we can understand, at the end of the tribulation period, not everybody will be dead. So we will probably, because we probably will all be dead by the time it happens, but if not, we'll all be raptured away as the church. So we'll be with Jesus. But when you come to the end of the great tribulation period and the Lord returns to set up the millennial kingdom, there are some humans that are still alive. We don't fully understand how we come back and rule with glorified bodies, but we will. But there'll be some humans that are alive and they'll still be able to procreate. So it appears the best understanding during the millennial kingdom is that there'll still be babies being born, not by us. We've got glorified bodies, but by the humans that made it through the tribulation, however many there were, such that by the time you get to the end of the thousand years, there'll be generations of people and some of them will turn to Christ, and shockingly, despite the fact that Jesus is on his throne, it must be that some of them don't turn to Christ because there's a final war. Revelation seventeen fourteen, And it talks about Satan being unleashed because he's bound for most of the millennial kingdom, then he's unleashed one final time. Revelation 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And you guys scratch your head because it's like, didn't you see the movie before? <laughs> what God did? But that's Satan. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So here's the magnification of God's caring love. His people sinned against him and they deserved the wages of sin, which is death. And God was preparing, even in a physical sense, to allow them to reap what they had sown. And yet, through the simple act of repentance, they're turning their hearts to God. God said, you're okay. 
I'll take care of you. And any army that rises up that was going to try and destroy you, don't worry about them. They're not even going to be on your radar. I'm going to take them out of the way. They're going to be destroyed and you'll be fine. Because while that army might have done great things, the things that God is going to do are even greater. And here's where we, again, fit in. Because we live on this side of the cross. At this time, the Messiah was still something prophesied about. People didn't fully understand what was going to happen. But God's people could repent, and they did, and it looks like this generation was spared any further trauma. But all the forces at work that stir up the Lord to anger still exist, and yet God chose to send Jesus Christ such that if sinners like us who deserve God's wrath would repent, we're forgiven. And not only are we forgiven, but there's a sense in which we're untouchable. And I don't mean in the physical sense. I I could be shot and killed. You could be shot and killed. But that can't separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Nothing can steal our inheritance. Nothing that anybody can do to these physical bodies can separate us or pull us out or snatch us out of the Father's hand. And you can look today at the forces aligned against God's church. And I already talked a couple of weeks ago that some people replace Israel with the church. That's not biblical. That's not accurate. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But even now, the forces lining up against the true church of God are formidable. You've got the entire educational system that absolutely is undermining any sense of a biblical worldview. In fact, such that we're mocked and laughed at for believing what the Bible says when all the experts know better. When it comes to morality, we're living out Romans 1 where God's giving people over to a depraved mind to do what they want and we're experiencing it real time. We see it every day. And the time where people are content to just leave us alone and let us do what we want to do has long since passed. I'm still convinced that in my lifetime, unless I die really quickly, there'll be a time when what is spoken is going to get worse against us, particularly here. Because how can you tolerate in your midst bigots and homophobes and misogynistic people which is what we apparently are. But you can pick all of that and turn the political system against us and turn everything against us and nothing can separate us from the love of God. And none of those things can snatch us out of the Lord's hand and none of those things can stop the advance of the Lord's kingdom. So even as we see all of these things around us, make sure that you repent. Make sure that you know Christ. 
make sure that you live holy lives. We all struggle with sin. But 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do that every single day. We need it. And in the midst of all of it, don't ever despair. I remember the first time reading the book of Revelation and starting to understand it, it was scary to me. I mean, it's horrific. And it's horrible. The number of billions of people that are going to die is astonishing. The number of people that are going to wind up in hell because even as they're dying, they're shaking their fist at God. It's heartbreaking. But when I see the love that God has set on me, I can only marvel. And it's the love that He set on you and all of His children. So let's don't despair. But let's carry the message of repentance to everybody we know. So that perhaps for some of them, they can avoid God's judgment as well. Join me as I close today's time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is such a struggle to fully articulate what you've done and what you're doing. And Lord, there's a sense of even as I'm teaching it, it's hard to fathom that you would choose to save a sinner like me. And yet, Lord, that's where we all find ourselves. Even as the, the verses from Ephesians, Pastor Steve read again this morning, we were dead, but you intervened. Lord, we see your intervention for the repentance of your people in the book of Joel. And we've lived the experience of your intervention in our hearts when we repented and turned to Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us to continue to understand your promises to Israel, your promises to care for your people. Lord, help us still live, not in personal fear, but in a healthy, awe-inspiring fear of you and the wrath that you will pour out on those who reject you. And Lord, help us live holy lives so that our testimony to people of the power of the gospel isn't marred by hypocrisy. Lord, I pray that you would use us to share the truth of Jesus Christ so that more people could repent and cry out to you while there's still time. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.